Welcome to this Uvula audio production of Medusa's Coils by H.P. Lovecraft and Zelia Bishop, performed by J.J. Campanella. This is the last in the three collaborations between Bishop and Lovecraft. If you've been listening to the other stories, again, Bishop paid Lovecraft to help write and edit the story. And also, again, although this is clearly a Lovecraft story, you can clearly see Bishop's influence in the story where, once again, we have a tale concerning a female who is not just mentioned in passing. Lovecraft was never known for his female characters. Bishop published this short horror novelette under her own name in Weird Tales magazine in January 1939, two years after Lovecraft's death and a year before The Mound was published in 1940. The story begins with our unnamed narrator driving a roadster down a lonely country road. He is trying to find Cape Girardeau, Missouri. Our narrator finds an old rundown home and goes into it asking for directions. But the directions that the old man in the house gives him are complex and it's getting dark, so the narrator asks instead if he can stay there. The old man is surprised because no one would want to stay there, but he agrees and begins to tell our narrator, the story of his son, who was married to a woman who, among other odd things, had coiled strange hair that seemed to move on its own when you weren't looking at it. And so the story begins. And now, Medusa's Coils. Chapter 1 the drive through Cape Girardeau had been through unfamiliar country, and as the late afternoon light grew golden and half dreamlike, I realized that I must have directions if I expected to reach the town before night. I didn't care to be wandering about these bleak southern Missouri lowlands after dark, for the roads were poor and the November cold rather formidable than an open roadster. Black clouds, too, were massing on the horizon. So I looked among the low gray and blue shadows that streaked the flat brownish fields, hoping to glimpse some house where I might get the needed information. It was a lonely and deserted country, but at last I spied a roof among a clump of trees near the small river on my right. Perhaps a full mile from the road, and probably reachable by some path or drive which I would presently come upon. In the absence of any near dwelling, I resolved to try my luck there, and was glad when the bushes by the roadside revealed the ruin of a carved stone gateway, covered with dry, dead vines and choked with undergrowth, that explained why I had not been able to trace the path across the fields in my first distant view. I saw I could not drive the car in, so I parked it very carefully near the gate where a thick evergreen would shield it in case of rain and got out for the long walk to the house. Traversing that brush-grown bath in the gathering twilight, I was conscious of a distinct sense of foreboding, probably induced by the air of sinister decay hovering about the gate and the former driveway. From the carvings on the old stone pillars, I inferred that this place was once in a state of manorial dignity, and I could clearly see that the driveway had originally boasted guardian lines of linden trees, some of which had died while 
Others had lost their special identity among the wild scrub growths of the region. As I plowed forward, cockleburs and stickers clung to my clothes, and I began to wonder whether the place could be inhabited after all. Was I tramping on a vain errand? For a moment I was tempted to go back and try some farm farther along the road, when a view of the house ahead aroused my curiosity and stimulated my venturesome spirit. There was something provocatively fascinating in the tree-girt, decrepit pile before me. It spoke of the graces and spaciousness of a bygone era, and a far more southerly environment. It was a typical wooden plantation house of the classic early 19th century pattern, with two and a half stories and a great Ionic portico whose pillars reached up as far as the attic and supported a triangular pediment. State of decay was extreme and obvious, one of the vast columns having rotted and fallen to the ground, while the upper piazza or balcony had sagged dangerously low. Other buildings, I judged, had formerly stood near it. As I mounted the broad stone steps to the low porch and the carved, fan-lighted doorway, I felt distinctly nervous, and I started to light a cigarette, desisting when I saw how dry and inflammable everything about me was. Though now convinced that the house was deserted, I nonetheless hesitated to violate its dignity without knocking. So I tugged at the rusty iron knocker until I could get it to move and finally set up a cautious rapping which seemed to make the whole place shake and rattle. There was no response, yet once more I plied the cumbrous creaking device as much to dispel the sense of unholy silence and solitude as to arouse any possible occupant within. Somewhere near the river I heard the mournful note of a dove and it seemed as if the coursing water itself were faintly audible. Half in a dream I seized and rattled the ancient latch, and finally gave the great six-paneled door a frank trying. It was unlocked, as I could see in a moment, and though it stuck and grated on its hinges, I began to push it open, stepping through into a vast shadowy hall as I did so. The moment I took a step, I regretted it. It was not that a legion of specters confronted me in that dim, dusty hall with the ghostly empire furniture, but I knew at once that the place was not deserted at all. There was a creaking on the great curved staircase, and the sound of faltering footsteps slowly descending. Then I saw a tall, bent figure silhouetted for an instant against the great Palladian window on the landing. My first start of terror was soon over, and as the figure descended the final flight, I was ready to greet the householder whose privacy I had invaded. In the semi-darkness, I could see him reach in his pocket for a match. There came a flare as he lit a small kerosene lamp which stood on a rickety console table near the foot of the steps. In the feeble glow was revealed the stooping figure of a very tall, emaciated old man, disordered as to dress and unshaved as to face, yet for all that with the bearing and expression of a gentleman. I did not wait for him to speak, but at once began to explain my presence. 
You'll pardon my coming in like this, but when my knocking didn't raise anyone, I concluded no one lived here. What I wanted originally was to know the right road to Cape Girardeau. The shortest road, that is. I wanted to get there before dark, but now, of course. As I paused, the man spoke, in exactly the cultivated tone I had expected, and with a mellow accent as unmistakably southern as the house he inhabited. Rather, you must pardon me for not answering your knock more promptly. I live in a very retired way and am not usually expecting visitors. At first I thought you were a mere curiosity seeker. Then when you knocked again, I started to answer. But I am not well and have to move very slowly. Spinal neuritis, very troublesome. But as for your getting to town before dark, it is plain you can't do that. The road you are on, for I suppose you came from the gate, is not the best or the shortest way. What you must do is take your first left after you leave the gate, that is, the first real road on your left. There are three or four cart paths you can ignore, but you can't mistake the real road because of the extra-large willow tree on the right just opposite it. Then when you've turned, keep on past two roads and turn to the right along the third. After that, you can... Perplexed by these elaborate directions, confusing things indeed to a total stranger, I could not help interrupting. Please wait a moment. How can I follow all these clues in pitch darkness without ever having been near here before? and with only an indifferent pair of headlights to tell me what is and what isn't a road. Besides, I think it's going to storm pretty soon, and my car is an open one. It looks as if I were in a bad fix if I want to get to Cape Girardeau tonight. The fact is, I don't think I'd better try to make it. I don't like to impose burdens or anything like that, but in view of the circumstances, do you suppose you could put me up for the night? I won't be any trouble, no meals or anything. Just let me have a quarter to sleep in till daylight and I'm all right. I can leave the car in the road where it is. A bit of wet weather won't hurt it if worse comes to worst. As I made my sudden request, I could see the old man's face lose its former expression of quiet resignation and take on an odd, surprised look. Sleep? Hair? He seemed so astonished at my request, I repeated it. Yes, why not? I assure you, I won't be any trouble. What else can I do? I'm a stranger hereabouts, and these rows are a labyrinth in the dark, and I'll wager it'll be raining torrents outside of an hour. This time it was my host's turn to interrupt, and as he did so, I could feel a peculiar quality in his deep musical voice. A stranger... Of course, you must be, else you wouldn't think of sleeping here. Wouldn't think of coming here at all. People don't come here nowadays. My desire to stay was increased a thousandfold by the sense of mystery his laconic words seemed to evoke. There was surely something alluringly queer about this place, and the pervasive musty smell seemed to cloak a thousand secrets. Again, I noticed the extreme decrepitude of everything about me, manifest even in the feeble rays of the single small lamp. 
I felt woefully chilly and saw with regret that no heating seemed to be provided. Yet so great was my curiosity that I wished most ardently to stay and learn something of the recluse and his dismal abode. Let that be as it may, I replied. I can't help about other people, but I surely would like to have a spot to stop till daylight. Still, if people don't relish this place, may it be because it's getting so run down. Of course, I suppose it would take a fortune to keep an estate like this up. But if the burden's too great, why don't you look for smaller quarters? Why try to stick it out here in this way, with all the hardships and discomforts? The man did not seem greatly offended, but he answered me gravely. Surely you can stay if you really wish to. You can come to no harm that I know of. But others claim there are certain peculiarly undesirable influences here. As for me, I stay because I have to. There is something I feel it a duty to God. Something that holds me. I wish I had the money and health and ambition to take decent care of the house and grounds. With my curiosity still more heightened, I prepared to take my host at his word, and followed him upstairs slowly when he motioned me to do so. It was very dark now, and the faint battering outside told me that the threatened rain had come. I'd be glad of any shelter, but this was doubly welcome because of the hints of mystery about the place and its master. For an incurable lover of the grotesque, no more fitting haven could have been provided. Chapter 2 There was a second-floor corner room in less unkempt shape than the rest of the house, and into this my host led me. He set down his small lamp and lit a somewhat larger one. From the cleanliness and contents of the room and from the books ranged along the walls, I could see I had not guessed amiss in thinking the man a gentleman of taste and breeding. He was a hermit, an eccentric no doubt, but he still had standards and intellectual interests. As he waved me to a seat, I began a conversation on general topics and was pleased to find him not at all taciturn. If anything, he seemed glad of someone to talk to, and did not even attempt to swerve the discourse from personal topics. He was, I learned, one Antoine de Rossi, of an ancient, powerful, and cultivated line of Louisiana planters. More than a century ago, his grandfather or a younger son had migrated to southern Missouri and founded a new estate in the lavish, ancestral manner, building this pillared mansion and surrounding it with all the accessories of a great plantation. There had been at one time as many as 200 Negroes in the cabins which stood on the flat ground in the rear, ground that the river had now invaded. To hear them singing and laughing and playing the banjo at night was to know the fullest charm of a civilization and social order now sadly extinct. In front of the house where the great guardian oaks and willow stood, there had been a lawn like a broad green carpet always watered and trimmed, and with flagstoned, flower-bordered walks curving through it. Riverside, for such the place was called, had been a lovely and idyllic homestead in its day, and my host could recall it when many traces of its best period still lingered. 
It was raining hard now, with dense sheets of water beating against the insecure roof, walls, and windows, and sending drops through a thousand chinks and crevices. Moisture trickled down to the floor from unsuspected places, and the mounting wind rattled the rotting, loose-hinged shutters outside. But I minded none of this, nor even thought of my roadster outside beneath the trees, for I saw that a story was coming. Incited to reminiscence, my host made a move to show me to sleeping quarters. But he kept on recalling the older, better days. Soon I saw it would receive an inkling of why he lived alone in the ancient place, and why his neighbors thought it full of undesirable influences. His voice was very musical as he spoke on, and his tale soon took a turn which left me no chance to grow drowsy. Yes, Riverside was built in 1816, and my father was born here in 1828. He'd be over a century old now if he were alive, but he died young. So young I can just barely remember him. In 64, that was, he was killed in the war. 7th Louisiana Infantry, CSA, for he went back to the old home to enlist. My grandfather was too old to fight, and yet he lived on to be 95 and helped my mother bring me up. A good bringing up, too, I'll give them credit. We always had strong traditions, high notions of honor, and my grandfather saw to it that I grew up the way de Russies have grown up generation after generation, ever since the Crusades. We weren't quite wiped out financially, but we managed to get on very comfortably after the war. I went to a good school in Louisiana, and later to Princeton. Later on, I was able to get the plantation on a fairly profitable basis, though you see what it's come to now. My mother died when I was 20, and my grandfather two years later. It was rather lonely after that, and in 85 I married a distant cousin in New Orleans. Things might have been different if she had lived, but she died when my son Dennis was born. Then I only had Dennis. I didn't try marriage again, but I gave all my time to the boy. He was like me, like all the DeRussies, darkish and tall and thin, with the devil of a temper. I gave him the same training my grandfather had given me, but he didn't need much training when it came to points of honor. It was in him, I reckon. Never saw such high spirit. It was all I could do to keep him from running away to the Spanish War when he was eleven. Romantic young devil, too. Full of high notions. You'd call him Victorian now. There was no trouble at all to make him let the black wenches alone. I sent him to the same school I'd gone to, and to Princeton, too. He was class of 1909. In the end, he decided to be a doctor, and went a year to the Harvard Medical School. Then he hit on the idea of keeping to the old French tradition of the family, and argued me into sending him across to the Sorbonne. I did, and proudly enough, though, I knew how lonely I'd be with him so far off. Would to God that I hadn't. I thought he was the safest kind of boy to be in Paris. He had a room in the Rue Saint-Jacques, 
That's near the university in the Latin Quarter. But according to his letters and his friends, he didn't cut up with the gayer dogs at all. The people he knew were mostly young fellows from home, serious students and artists who thought more of their work than of striking attitudes and painting the town red. But of course there were lots of fellows who were on a sort of dividing line between serious studies and the devil. The decadents, you know, experimenters in life and sensation, the Baudelaire kind of chap. Naturally, Dennis ran up against a good many of these and saw a good deal of their life. They had all sorts of crazy circles and cults, imitation devil worship, fake black masses, things like that. And I doubt if it did them much harm on the whole. Probably most of them forgot all about it in a year or two. One of the deepest into this queer stuff was a fellow that Dennis had known at school, for that matter, whose father I'd known myself, Frank Marsh of New Orleans, disciple of Lefcadio Hearn and Gauguin and Van Gogh, regular epitome of the yellow 90s. Poor devil, he had the makings of a great artist. Marsh was the oldest friend Dennis had in Paris, so as a matter of fact, they saw a good deal of each other. To talk over old times at St. Clair Academy, and all that. The boy wrote me a good deal about him, and I didn't see any special harm when he spoke of the group of mystics Marsh ran with. Seems there was some cult of prehistoric Egyptian and Carthaginian magic having a rage among the Bohemian element on the left bank at that time. Some nonsensical thing that pretended to reach back to forgotten sources of hidden truth in lost African civilizations. Great Zimbabwe, the dead Atlantean cities in the Hokar region of the Sahara. And that had a lot of gibberish connected with snakes and human hair. At least I called it gibberish then. Dennis used to quote Marsh as saying odd things about the veiled fact behind the legend of Medusa's snaky locks. And behind the later Ptolemic myth of Bernice, who offered up her hair to save her husband and brother and had it set in the sky as the constellation Coma Bernice. I don't think this business made much impression on Dennis until the night of the queer ritual at Marsh's rooms when he met the priestess. Most of the devotees of this cult were young fellas, but the head of it was a young woman who called herself Tanit Isis, letting it be known to her real name, her name in this latest incarnation as she put it, was Marceline Bedard. She claimed to be the left-handed daughter of Marquis de Chameau and seemed to have been both a petty artist and an artist model before adopting this more lucrative magical game. Someone had said she had lived for a time in the West Indies, Martinique, I think, but she was very reticent about herself. Part of her pose was a great show of austerity and holiness, but I don't think the more experienced students took that very seriously. Dennis, though, was far from experienced and wrote me fully ten pages of slush about the goddess he had discovered. If I'd only realized his simplicity, I might have done something, but I never thought a puppy infatuation like that could mean much. 
I felt absurdly sure that Dennis's touchy personal honor and family pride would always keep him out of the most serious complications. As time went on, though, his letters began to make me nervous. He mentioned this Marceline more and more, and his friends less and less, and began talking about the cruel and silly way they declined to introduce her to their mothers and sisters. He seems to have asked her no questions about herself, and I don't doubt but that she filled him full of romantic legendary concerning her origin and divine revelations and the way people slighted her. At length I could see that Dennis was altogether cutting his own crowd and spending the bulk of his time with this alluring priestess. At her special request, he never told the old crowd of their continual meetings, so nobody over there tried to break the affair up. I suppose she thought he was fabulously rich, for he had an air of a patrician, and people of a certain class think all aristocratic Americans are wealthy. In any case, she probably thought this was a rare chance to contract a genuine right-handed alliance with a really eligible young man. By the time my nervousness burst into open advice, it was too late. The boy had lawfully married her, and wrote he was dropping his studies and bringing the woman home to Riverside. He said she had made a great sacrifice and resigned her leadership of the magical cult, and that henceforth she would merely be a private gentlewoman, the future mistress of Riverside and the mother of de Russies to come. Well, sir, I took it the best way I could. I knew that sophisticated continentals have different standards from our own old American ones. And anyhow, I really knew nothing against the woman. A charlatan, perhaps, but why necessarily anything worse? I suppose I tried to keep as naive as possible about such things in those days, for the boy's sake. Clearly there was nothing for a man of sense to do but to let Dennis alone so long as his new wife conformed to de Russi ways. Let her have a chance to prove herself, and perhaps she wouldn't hurt the family as much as some might fear. So I didn't raise any objections or ask any penitence. The thing was done, and I stood ready to welcome the boy back, whatever he had brought with him. They got here three weeks after the telegram telling of the marriage. Marceline was beautiful. There was no denying that. And I could see how the boy might very well get foolish about her. She did have an air of breeding, and I think to this day she must have had some strains of good blood in her. She was apparently not much over twenty, medium size, fairly slim, and as graceful as a tigress in posture and motions. Her complexion was a deep olive, like old ivory, and her eyes were large and dark. She had small, classically regular features, though not quite clean-cut enough to suit my taste, and the most singular head of jet-black hair I had ever seen. I didn't wonder that she had dragged the subject of hair into her magical cult, for with that heavy profusion of it, the idea must have occurred to her naturally. Coiled up, it made her look like an oriental princess in a drawing of Aubrey Beardsley's. 
hanging down her back, it came well below her knees, and shone in the light as if it had possessed some separate, unholy vitality of its own. I would almost have thought of Medusa, Bernice, myself, without having such things suggested to me upon seeing and studying that hair. Sometimes I swear I thought it moved slightly of itself, intended to arrange itself in distinct ropes or strands, but this may have been sheer illusion. She brushed it incessantly and seemed to use some sort of preparation on it. I got the notion once, a curious whimsical notion, that it was a living thing which she had to feed in some strange way. All nonsense, but it added to my feeling of constraint about her and her hair. I can't deny that I failed to like her wholly, no matter how hard I tried. I couldn't tell what the trouble was, but it was there. Something about her repelled me very subtly, and I could not help weaving morbid and macabre associations about everything connected with her. Her complexion called up thoughts of Babylon, Atlantis, and Lemuria, and the forgotten dominations of the elder world. Her eyes struck me sometimes as the eyes of some unholy forest creature or animal goddess too immeasurably ancient to be fully human. And her hair, that dense, exotic, overnourished growth of oily inkiness, made one shiver as a great black python might have done. There was no doubt but that she realized my involuntary attitude, though I tried to hide it, and she tried to hide the fact that she noticed it. Yet the boy's infatuation lasted. He positively fawned on her, and overdid all the little gallantries of daily life to a sickening degree. She appeared to return the feeling, though I could see it took a conscious effort to make her duplicate his enthusiasms and extravagances. For one thing, I think she was piqued to learn that we weren't as wealthy as she had expected. It was bad business all told. I could see that sad undercurrents were rising. Dennis was half-hypnotized with puppy love and began to grow away from me as he felt my shrinking from his wife. This kind of thing went on for months, and I saw that I was losing my only son, the boy who had formed the center of all my thoughts and acts for the past quarter century. I'll own that I felt bitter about it. What father wouldn't? And yet I could do nothing. Marceline seemed to be a good wife enough in those early months, and our friends received her without any quibbling or questioning. I was always nervous, though, about what some of the young fellows in Paris might ride home to their relatives after the news of the marriage spread around. Despite the woman's love of secrecy, it couldn't remain hidden forever. Indeed, Dennis had written a few of his closest friends in strict confidence as soon as he was settled with her at Riverside. I got to stand alone in my room more and more, with my failing health as an excuse. It was about that time that my present spinal neuritis began to develop, which made the excuse a pretty good one. Dennis didn't seem to notice the trouble or take any interest in me or my habits or my affairs, and it hurt me to see how callous he was getting. I began to get sleepless and often racked my brain in the night to try to find out what was really the matter, what it really was that made my new daughter-in-law so repulsive and even dimly horrible to me. It surely wasn't her old mystical nonsense, 
for she had left all the past behind her and never mentioned it once. She didn't even do any painting, although I understood she had once dabbled in art. Oddly, the only ones who seemed to share my uneasiness were the servants. The blacks around the house seemed very sullen in their attitude toward her, and in a few weeks all save the few who were strongly attached to our family had left. These few, old Scipio and his wife Sarah, the cook Delilah, and Mary, Scipio's daughter, were as civil as possible, but plainly revealed that their new mistress commanded their duty rather than their affection. They stayed in their own remote part of the house as much as possible. McCabe, our white chauffeur, was insolently admiring rather than hostile. And another exception was a very old Zulu woman said to have come over from Africa over a hundred years before. She had been some sort of leader in her small cabin as a kind of family pensioner. Old Sophonisba always showed reverence whenever Marceline came near her. One time I saw her kiss the ground where her mistress had walked. Blacks are superstitious animals, and I wondered whether Marceline had been talking any of her mystical nonsense to our hands in order to overcome their evident dislike. Chapter 3 Well, that's how we went on for nearly half a year. Then, in the summer of 1916, things began to happen. Toward the middle of June, Dennis got a note from his old friend Frank Marsh, telling of a sort of nervous breakdown that made him want to take a rest in the country. It was postmarked New Orleans, for Marsh had gone home from Paris when he felt the collapse coming on and seemed a very plain, though polite, bid for an invitation from us. Marsh, of course, knew that Marceline was here, and asked very courteously after her. Dennis was sorry to hear of his trouble, and told him at once to come along for an indefinite visit. Marsh came, and I was shocked to notice how he had changed since I had last seen him in his earlier days. He was a smallish, lightish fellow with blue eyes and an undecided chin. And now I could see the effects of drink, and I don't know what else, in his puffy eyelids and large nose pores and heavy lines around the mouth. I reckon he had taken his pose of decadence pretty seriously, and set out to be as much of a Rimbaud, Baudelaire, L'Autremont as he could. And yet he was delightful to talk to, for like all decadents, he was exquisitely sensitive to the color and atmosphere and names of things. Admirably thoroughly alive, and with whole records of conscious experience, in obscure shadowy fields of living, and feeling which most of us pass over without knowing they exist. Poor young devil, if only his father had lived longer and taken him in hand. There was great stuff in that boy. I was glad of the visit, for I felt it would help to set up a normal atmosphere in the house again, and that's what it really seemed to do at first, for as I said, Marsh was a delight to have around. He was as sincere and profound and honest as I ever saw in my life, and I certainly believed that nothing on earth mattered to him except the perception and expression of beauty. 
When he saw an exquisite thing, or was creating one, his eyes would dilate until the light irises went nearly out of sight, leaving two mystical black pits in that weak, delicate, chalk-like face. Black pits opening on strange worlds which none of us could guess about. When he reached here, though, he didn't have many chances to show this tendency, for he had, as he told Dennis, gone quite stale. It seems he had been very successful as an artist of a bizarre kind, like Fuseli or Goya or Sima or Clark Ashton Smith, but had suddenly become played out. The world of ordinary things around him had ceased to hold anything he could recognize as beauty. Beauty, that is, of enough force and poignancy to arouse his creative faculties. He had often been this way before. All decadents are. But this time he could not invent any new, strange, or outré sensation or experience which would supply the needed illusion of fresh beauty or stimulatingly adventurous expectancy. He was like a de tal or de essente at the most jaded point of his curious orbit. Marceline was away when Marsh arrived. She hadn't been enthusiastic about his coming and had refused to decline an invitation from some of our friends in St. Louis, which came about that time for her and Dennis. Dennis, of course, stayed to receive his guest, but Marceline had gone on alone. It was the first time they'd ever been separated, and I hoped the interval would help to dispel the sort of daze that was making such a fool of the boy. Marceline showed no hurry to get back, but seemed to me to prolong her absence as much as she could. Dennis stood it better than one would have expected from such a doting husband, and seemed more like his old self as he talked over other days with Marsh and tried to cheer the listless esteet up. It was Marsh who seemed most impatient to see the woman, perhaps because he thought her strange beauty or some phase of the mysticism which had gone into her one-time magical cult might help to reawaken his interest in things and give him another start toward artistic creation. That there was no baser reason, I was absolutely certain from what I knew of Marsh's character. With all his weaknesses, he was still a gentleman, and it had indeed relieved me when I first learned that he wanted to come here because of his willingness to accept Dennis's hospitality proved that there was no reason why he shouldn't. When at last Marceline did return, I could see that Marsh was tremendously affected. He did not attempt to make her talk of the bizarre thing which she had so definitely abandoned, but was unable to hide a powerful admiration which kept his eyes now dilated in that curious way for the first time during his visit riveted to her every moment she was in the room. She, however, seemed uneasy rather than pleased by his steady scrutiny. That is, she seemed so at first, though this feeling of hers wore away in a few days and left the two on a basis of the most cordial and voluble congeniality. I could see Marsh studying her constantly when he thought no one was watching, and I wondered how long it would be that only the artist and not the primitive man would be aroused by her mysterious graces. Dennis naturally felt some irritation at this turn of affairs, though he 
realized that his guest was a man of honor and that as kindred mystics and esthetes, Marceline and Marsh would naturally have things and interests to discuss in which a more or less conventional person could have no part. He didn't hold anything against anybody, but merely regretted that his own imagination was too limited and traditional to let him talk with Marceline as Marsh talked. At this stage of things, I began to see more of the boy. With his wife otherwise busy, he had time to remember that he had a father, and a father who was ready to help him in any sort of perplexity or difficulty. We often sat together on the veranda, watching Marsh and Marceline as they rode up and down the drive on horseback, or played tennis on the court that used to stretch south of the house. They talked mostly in French, which Marsh, though he hadn't more than a quarter portion of French blood, handled more glibly than either Dennis or I could speak it. Marceline's English, always academically correct, was rapidly improving in accent, but it was plain that she relished dropping back into her mother tongue. As we looked at the congenial couple they made, I could see the boy's cheeks and throat muscles tighten. Though he wasn't a whit less ideal a host to Marsh, or a whit less considerate a husband to Marceline. All this was generally in the afternoon, for Marceline rose very late, had breakfast in bed, and took an immense amount of time preparing to come downstairs. I never knew of anyone so wrapped up in cosmetics, beauty exercises, hair oils, unguents, and everything of that kind. It was in these morning hours that Dennis and Marsh did their real visiting and exchanged the close confidences which kept their friendship up despite the strain that jealousy imposed. Well, it was in one of those morning talks on the veranda that Marsh made the proposition which brought on the end. I was laid up with some of my neuritis, but had managed to get downstairs and stretch out on the front parlor sofa near the long window. Dennis and Marsh were just outside, so I couldn't help hearing all they said. They had been talking about art and the curious, capricious environmental elements needed to jolt an artist into producing the real article. When Marsh suddenly swerved from abstractions to the personal application he must have had in mind from the start, I suppose, he was saying, that nobody can tell just what it is in some scenes or objects that make them aesthetic stimuli for certain individuals. Basically, of course, it must have some reference to each man's background of stored-up mental associations, for no two people have the same scale of sensitiveness and responses. We decadents are artists for whom all ordinary things have ceased to have any emotional or imaginative significance. But no one of us responds in the same way to exactly the same extraordinary thing. Now take me, for instance. And then he paused and resumed. I know, Denny, that I can say these things to you because you have such a preternaturally unspoiled mind, clean and fine, direct and objective and all that. You won't misunderstand as an over-subtilized, effete man of the world might. And then he paused once again. The fact is, I think I know what's needed to set my imagination working again. 
I've had a dim idea of it ever since we were in Paris, but I'm sure now. Smart Celine, old chap. That face and that hair and the train of shadowy images they bring up. Not merely visible beauty, though God knows there's enough of that, but something peculiar and individualized that can't be exactly explained. Do you know in the last few days I've felt the existence of such a stimulus so keenly that I honestly think I could outdo myself, break into the masterpiece class if I could get hold of paint and canvas at just the time when her face and hair set my fancy stirring and weaving. There's something weird and otherworldly about it, something joined up with that dim ancient thing Marceline represents. I don't know how much she's told you about that side of her, but I can assure you there's plenty of it. She has some marvelous links with the outside. There was some change in Dennis's expression. They must have halted the speaker then, for there was a considerable spell of silence before the words went on. I was utterly taken aback, for I'd expected no such overt development like this, and I wondered what my son could be thinking. My heart began to pound violently, and I strained my ears in the frankest of intentional eavesdropping, and then Marsh continued. Of course you're jealous. I know how a speech like mine must sound, but I can swear to you that you shouldn't be. Dennis didn't answer, and Marsh went on. To tell the truth, I could never be in love with Marceline. I couldn't even be a cordial friend of hers in the warmest sense. Why, damn it all, I've felt like a hypocrite just talking with her these days as I've been doing. The case is simply that one phase of her half-hypnotizes me in a certain way, a very strange, fantastic, and dimly terrible way, just as another phase hypnotizes you in a much more normal way. I see something in her, or to be psychologically exact, something through her or beyond her that you don't see at all. Something that brings up a vast pageantry of shapes from forgotten abysses. It makes me want to paint incredible things whose outlines vanish the instant I try to envisage them clearly. Don't mistake, Denny. Your wife is a magnificent being, a splendid focus of cosmic forces, who has a right to be called divine if anything on earth has. Well, I felt a clearing of the situation at that point for the abstract strangeness of Marsh's express statement, plus the flattery he was now heaping on Marceline, could not fail to disarm and mollify one as fondly proud of his consort as Dennis always was. Marsh evidently caught the change himself, for there was more confidence in his tone as he continued. I must paint her, Denny. Must paint that hair. And you won't regret it. There's something more than mortal about that hair. Something more than beautiful. He paused, and I wondered what Dennis could be thinking. I wondered indeed what I was thinking. Was Marsha's interest actually that of the artist alone, or was he merely infatuated as Dennis had been? I thought in their school days that Marsh had envied my boy, and I dimly felt that it might be the same now. On the other hand, something in that talk of artistic stimulus had rung amazingly true, so that the more I pondered, the more I was inclined to take the stuff at face value. Dennis seemed to do so too, for although I could not catch his low-spoken reply, I could tell by the effect it produced. It must have been affirmative. There was a sound of someone slapping another on the back, 
and then a grateful speech from Marsh that I was long to remember. That's great, Denny, and just as I told you, you'll never regret it. In a sense, I'm half doing it for you. You'll be a different man when you see it. I'll put you back where you used to be, give you a waking up and a sort of salvation. But you can't see what I mean as yet. Just remember old friendship and don't get the idea that I'm not the same old bird. I rose perplexedly as I saw the two stroll off across the lawn, arm in arm, smoking in unison. What could Marsh have meant by his strange, almost ominous reassurance? The more my fears were quieted in one direction, the more they were aroused in another. Look at it any way I could, it seemed to be a rather bad business. But matters got started just the same. Dennis fixed up an attic room with skylights, and Marsh sent for all sorts of painting equipment. Everyone was rather excited about this new venture, and I was at least glad that something was on foot to break the brooding tension. Soon the sittings began, and we all took them quite seriously, for we could see that Marsh regarded them as important artistic events. Denny and I used to go quietly about the house as though something sacred was occurring, and we knew that it was sacred so far as Marsh was concerned. With Marceline, though, it was a different matter. As I began to see at once, whatever Marsh's reactions to the sittings may have been, hers were painfully obvious. Every possible way she betrayed a frank and commonplace infatuation for the artist and would repulse Dennis's remarks of affection whenever she dared. Oddly, I noticed this more vividly than Dennis himself, and tried to devise some plan for keeping the boy's mind easy until the matter could be straightened out. There was no use in having him excited about it if it could be helped. In the end, I decided that Dennis had better be away while the disagreeable situation existed. I could represent his interests well enough at this end, and sooner or later Marsh would finish the picture and go. My view of Marsha's honor was such that I did not look for any worse developments. When the matter had blown over and Marceline had forgotten about her new infatuation, it would be time enough to have Dennis on hand again. So I wrote a long letter to my marketing and financial agent in New York and cooked up a plan to have the boy summoned there for an indefinite time. I had the agent write him that our affairs absolutely required one of us to go east. And, of course, my illness made it clear that I could not be the one. It was so arranged that when Dennis got to New York, he would find enough plausible matters to keep him busy as long as I thought he ought to be. The plan worked perfectly, and Dennis started for New York without the least suspicion. Marceline and Marsh went with him in the car to Cape Girardeau, where he caught the afternoon train to St. Louis. They returned about dark, and as McCabe drove the car back to the stables, I could hear them talking on the veranda, in those same chairs near the long parlor window where Marsh and Dennis had sat when I overheard them talk about the portrait. This time I resolved to do some intentional eavesdropping, so I quietly went down to the front parlor and stretched out on the sofa near the window. At first I could not hear anything, but very shortly there came a sound as if of a chair being shifted, 
followed by a short, sharp breath and a sort of inarticulately hurt exclamation from Marceline. Then I heard Marsh speaking in a strained, almost formal voice. I'd enjoy working tonight if you're not too tired. Marceline's reply was in the same hurt tone which had marked her exclamation. She used English as he had done. Oh, Frank, she said, is that really all you care about, forever working? Can't we just sit in this glorious moonlight? He answered impatiently, his voice showing a certain contempt beneath the dominant quality of artistic enthusiasm. Moonlight? Good God, what cheap sentimentality! For a supposedly sophisticated person, you surely do hang on to some of the crudest claptrap that ever escaped dime novels. With art at your elbow, you have to think of the moon, cheap as a spotlight at the varieties. Or perhaps it makes you think of the Rudmas dance around the stone pillars at O'Toyle. Hell, how you used to make those goggle-eyed yaps stare. But no, I suppose you've dropped all that now. No more Atlantean magic or hair snake rites for Madame de Russy. I'm the only one to remember the old things, the things that came down through the temples of Tanit and echoed on the ramparts of Zimbabwe. But I won't be cheated of that remembrance. All that is weaving itself into the thing on my canvas, the thing that is going to capture wonder and crystallize the secrets of 75,000 years. Marceline interrupted in a voice full of mixed emotions. It's you who are cheaply sentimental now. You know well that the old things had better be left alone. All of you had better look out if I ever chant the old rites or try to call up what lies hidden in Yugoth, Zimbabwe, and Rilie. I thought you had more sense. You want me to be interested in this precious painting of yours, yet you never let me see what you're doing. Always that black cloth over it. It's of me. I shouldn't think it would matter if I saw it. Marsh interrupted this time, his voice curiously hard and strained. He said, No, not now. You'll see it in due course of time. You say it's of you. Yes, it's that, but it's more. If you knew, you mightn't be so impatient. Poor Dennis. My God, it's a shame. My throat went suddenly dry as those words rose to an almost febrile pitch. What could Marsh mean? Suddenly I saw that he had stopped and was entering the house alone. I heard the front door slam and listened as his footsteps ascended the stairs. Outside on the veranda, I could hear Marceline's heavy, angry breathing. I crept away, sick at heart feeling that there were grave things to ferret out before I could safely let Dennis come back. After that evening, the tension around the place was even worse than before. Marceline had always lived on flattery and fawning, and the shock of those few blunt words from Marsh was too much for her temperament. There was no living in the house with her any more, for with poor Dennis gone, she took out her abusiveness on everybody. When she could find no one indoors to quarrel with, she would go out to Sophonisba's cabin and spend hours talking with the queer old Zulu woman. Aunt Sophie was the only person who would fawn abjectly enough to suit her, and when I tried once to overhear their conversation, I found Marceline's whispering about elder secrets and 
unknown Kadath, while the negress rocked back and forth in her chair, making inarticulate sounds of reverence and admiration every now and then. But nothing could break her dog-like infatuation for Marsh. She would talk bitterly and sullenly to him, yet was getting more and more obedient to his wishes. It was very convenient for him, since he now became able to make her pose for the picture whenever he felt like painting. He tried to show gratitude for this willingness, but I thought I could detect a kind of contempt or even loathing beneath his careful politeness. For my part, I frankly hated Marceline. There was no use in calling my attitude anything as mild as mere dislike these days. Certainly I was glad Dennis was away. His letters, not nearly so frequent as I wished, showed signs of strain and worry. As the middle of August went by, I gathered from Marsha's remarks that the portrait was nearly done. His mood seemed increasingly sardonic, though Marceline's temper improved a bit as the prospect of seeing the thing tickled her vanity. I can still recall the day when Marsh said he'd had everything finished within a week. Marceline brightened up perceptibly, though not without a venomous look at me. It seemed as if her coiled hair visibly tightened around her head. I'm to be the first to see it, she snapped. Then smiling at Marsh, she said, and if I don't like it, I shall slash it to pieces. Marsh's face took on the most curious look I've ever seen it wear as he answered her. I can't vouch for your taste, Marceline, but I swear it will be magnificent. Not that I want to take much credit. Art creates itself. And this thing had to be done. Just wait. During the next few days, I felt a queer sense of foreboding, as if the completion of the picture meant a kind of catastrophe instead of relief. Dennis, too, had not written me, and my agent in New York said he was planning some trip to the country. I wonder what the outcome of the whole thing would be. What a queer mix of elements. Marsh and Marceline, Dennis and I. How would all these ultimately react on one another? When my fears grew too great, I tried to lay them all on my infirmity, but that explanation never quite satisfied me.